I'd like to, uh, we said we would talk about the Haggadah this, this time, and this is uh, the last, our last Sheur before Pesach. So talking about the Haggadah um, is reasonable. I would like to uh, ask a question. And that question uh, doesn't appear in the Haggadah, but it has already confounded the Rishonim. That question is, why was the exodus from Egypt so complicated? Why do there have to be so many makot? As difficult as these makot were, it doesn't seem that any of them worked. In other words, God brought the plague of death. But the Egyptians recovered. Sardea, Kinim, Arov, Deva, all of these makot as much as we love the fact that we could put a difference of opinion amongst Jews, whether you put your forefinger or your pinky into the wine cup when you say the, the ten makot, like a, a question I would not like to address right now, but everybody seems to wake up at that point in the Haggadah, like there are two high points in the Haggadah for most people. One is singing Dayenu, which is like a rousing chorus, and people who don't know Hebrew and have never studied Torah, they all know how to sing Dayenu, at least the chorus. They could all sing the chorus. And the second thing is dipping your finger into the wine when you say the ten makot. And not only that is it important, but if you haven't had your say to people who are not so well versed in what's going on, everybody jumps up to help them. Oh, yo, here's your cup, and here's the other cup of the plate. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. No one ever jumped up at a Seder that I was at to explain what Avadim Hayinu Leparo B'Mitzrayim meant. That you could do, you have an English translation, you know, like, that's good enough. But these Makot, these Makot are, are difficult to understand because they don't seem to have uh, accomplished anything. They don't accomplish anything because here the Bnei Yisrael are leaving Mitzrayim and they are immediately followed by Paro and his army. In other words, all those Makos made really no impression on Paro. It's true, they led to the fact that Bnei Yisrael were able to leave. But they weren't really able to leave if power was willing to chase after them and try to destroy them or make them come back to Mitzrayim. There's a disconnect here, in my, in my opinion. And you know that the Rambam says, the Rambam says in the opening sentence of his laws of the night of the Seder, the laws of the Seder, that's in Hametz and Matzah Perek the Rambam says, Mitzvah l'saper benisim v'niflaot. It's a mitzvah. The mitzvah on the night of the Seder is to tell the story of the miracles. But what is the story of the miracles? The story of the miracles can't be that God can do a miracle. Because that seems to be obvious even if we don't think about Ayitziat uh, Mitzrayim. The, the story of the Nisim and Niflaut, as we've just pointed out, doesn't seem to be that they led to the exodus from 
Mitzrayim. What saved the Jews ultimately was Kriyat Yam Suf. <coughs> now Kriyat Yam Suf, to the best of my knowledge and memory, is not one of the ten Makot. But the splitting of the sea is really the eleventh Makkah. But it's not called the eleventh Makkah, it's just called the splitting of the Red Sea. So that nothing happened that B'nai Yisrael could write home about until Kriyat Yam Suf. In other words, the story of the Nisim and Niflot, I mean, from my point of view, should focus, should be focused on Kriyat Yam Suf, which took place not on the day of Pesach, not on the 15th day of Nisan, but took place a week later. Right, and, and, and the Kriyat Yam Suf is so maligned as an event that we have no way of sharing that event communally. It's true that Hungarian Hasidim, your neighbors, celebrate Kriyat Yam Suf. If you live in Yerushalayim and you've never done it, it's worth it. You have to go to the Ravarlach. You have to go to Ravarlach on the night of the um, the last day of Pesach, and you'll see the celebration of Kriyat Yam Suf as it was in Hungary. And the Rebbe runs around. And they have some kind of I don't get it exactly. The Rebbe runs around. Everybody claps. And then they throw water on the floor, and miraculously the Rebbe has not yet slipped and broken his neck. Right. But I guess well, that's the training that the Rebbe gets before he becomes a Rebbe to do that. <coughs> so that's where you find the celebration. Now that itself, that itself, the fact that the celebration of Kriyat Yam Suf is so, such a minor celebration, such an un, uh, impressive celebration, that itself is Omer Darshani. So here we are on the first night of Pesach, at the Seder, obliged by the Rambam to talk about Nisim and Niflaot, which was certainly going on before Yitzhak Mitzrayim. However, it is also true, it is also true that these Nisim and Niflaot did not lead to Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Jews did not, what? Makat Bechorot? Okay, they, 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 they said, okay, stop killing us, we'll let you go. But immediately they ran after them. I mean, that's not a real let you go, right? It wasn't like they were vanquished. It was more like it was a tactical thing. Paro said, okay, because he knew that the Makat Bechorot was a very severe thing. I mean, I'm, I'm imagining. But then after they left, they ran after them. Where did they get the strength? I mean, you could ask, where did they get the strength to run after them? I'm asking a different question. Why don't we celebrate Kriyat Yam Suf in telling the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So let's look at, a, at, a, at several psukim in Shemot Perik Yudalit. Shemot Perik Yudalit is the chapter that tells the story of Kriyat Yam Suf, of the splitting of the sea. The chapter that comes before uh, Az Yashir Moshe, that's chapter 15. Right, you know that the numbering of the chapters is not a Jewish effort, but we use them anyway. <coughs> it's one of my responses, you know, people ask me, why do you write 
the English date on the check, well, that's over, there are no checks anymore. But in the old days, used to write English dates on the check, check and my, uh, my, uh, my dear friends are always looking to find fault. There are people like that. They'd say, well, why, why don't you write the Hebrew date? The real reason I didn't write the Hebrew date was because the tellers in the bank didn't have a clue of what the Hebrew date might have been. But I, I, uh, I told them, what, I always asked them, what chapter are we up to? It's like we're reading Shemot. I said, well, how could you use those non-Jewish chapters? The numbering of the chapters is not Jewish. It's inherited from uh, the Latin translation of the Bible, which should upset some people. But it doesn't yet. Maybe they don't, you know, it hasn't really been promoted. So here we are, chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the story of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim and the Egyptians running after them and Kriyat Yamsuf. That's the story. So, Vayomer Moshe Ha'am, the first Pasuk, Pasuk Gud Gimel, Alti Ra'u. Alti Ra'u. This becomes actually a theme in this, in this, uh, uh, so, don't be afraid. Let me don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Of the fact that the Egyptians are coming and the Egyptians have been smitten or smoten or, or whatever that word is uh, uh, again and again and again. Why should the, the Jews be afraid of them? What? Okay, they were chasing after them, but didn't they think God was going to handle it? I mean, God was handling Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So, wouldn't you think that the beneficiary of the ten plagues, B'nai Yisrael, would not be consumed by fear. I mean, here's God is, is sort of telling them, I'm with you, I'll take care of it, I'll do it. And they say, oh, you know, like, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe it's not going to work, maybe it won't happen. So, Altirau. And Moshe Rabbeinu makes this impassioned kind of plea. Stand up straight and uh, <coughs> and you will see at Yeshuat Hashem. Asher yaseh lachem hayom. The Egyptians chasing after the Jews. The Jews are all shaking and then their knees are, are cracking together. And, and Moshe Rabbeinu said, take a look. That's the last thing they wanted to do, I imagine. Take a look at those Egyptians and you're not going to see them again. That's it. This is it. This is a... So it didn't work. God will fight for you. In other words... Egypt is continued. The ten plagues are going to be continued. He doesn't tell them what's going to happen exactly yet, but it's continued. So you have this kind of difficult pasuk. <coughs> because Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, How come you're davening? That's what titzak means. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu, but we don't see that Moshe Rabbeinu was titzak elai. Moshe didn't wasn't speaking to God. Don't be a, a davener. This is not the time for Torah learning. This is the time to go out and fight. So why don't you get yourself up and go out and fight? So if you look at, at Rashi, 
You see Pasuk Tetvav in the Rashi, at the bottom of the page, the fourth line in the Rashi. So Rashi stuck. He says, when Moshe Rabbeinu is not so Ekelai. We don't see that in the text. So Rashi says, My inference is that Moshe Rabbeinu must have been davening. <coughs> Otherwise, what God say to him, Matitzakelai? Inconceivable, Matitzakelai. Lamadnu shayam Moshe omeidu mitpalev. Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu lo eit atal harich b'tfilah she Yisrael netunim b'tzarah. This is not the time. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, to just depend on davening. When B'nai Yisrael are in trouble. But what are you supposed to do? <coughs> You're supposed to act. So in other words, Moshe Rabbeinu, according to Rashi, is being, being accused of impeding progress. Impeding motion. He says, B'nai Yisrael, their obligation is to run away from this danger, even if it means running into the sea. This is a kind of a, a more difficult shot. Why are you screaming towards me? God says. But the word could also be taken to mean because you know at a certain point in Jewish history Many Jews stopped differentiating between the Aleph and the Ayin. Amongst them, all the Ashkenazic Jews, all the Sephardic Jews, all the Israeli Jews. The only exception really are the Temanim, who maintain a distinction when they read or speak Hebrew between an Aleph and an Ayin. So because that distinction was lost already in the time of the Gemara, in Eretz Yisrael certainly, <coughs> Chazal saw this as an opening for a drasha. That the word a lie with an aleph could also be a lie with an ayin. I just hope you understand. This is what happened in Hebrew. It would seem like if we were if we were more uh, academic, so we would uh, recognize the fact that if there's an aleph in Hebrew and an ayin in Hebrew in writing. There must have been a time when those two letters were differentiated somehow. No? Does that sound reasonable? Now you wouldn't have a letter that, did, that was the same sound as another letter. That's happened after the letters were written down. So after the, the Torah was written, after the Torah was written, the Aleph and the Ayin, the distinction between them was neutralized. And they all became Alephs. Everything became an Aleph. That's how we speak Hebrew. That's how we, either you come from some Ashkenazic place or you come from Israel. Or Israelis don't distinguish between the Aleph and the Ayin. The only people left are the Temanim and they also don't because they're children. They're children of children who distinguish. So they became Israelis. They speak Hebrew like Israel. So the only place in the world where they still distinguish systematically between the Aleph and the Ayin is in reading the Perak Hayom Tanach. You know, you, you know what the radio is? 
Everybody here know you remember the radio? So on the radio, on the radio, at certain hours of the day, tell no, they just read a postcard on television. Sukkot Shoyel, that is the fact. But uh, on the radio, they read a parak. It's a guy Tartuno, you know, and he he distinguished every consonant that he could possibly distinguish, and that became the standard. It's like reading the Quran. Allah do. You know, like the Arabs also have this idea that the Quran, I mean, they had it first, really, that the Quran is, is perfect. The Arabic of the Quran is the most perfect Arabic. And so when they read the Quran, they don't read it in a dialect. They read it as the Quran. It's the same every place. And so we uh, learned about this from the Arabs. You know, all the, the great Jewish grammarians of the medieval of medieval times were students of Arab grammarians, one way or the other. Right? The, the Jews were too busy learning Gemara to be too involved in grammar. But, uh, but they learned grammar from, <coughs> from the Arabs. So Rashi says, You see the Rashi? Right? Why are you screaming towards me? Upon me? I'm in charge here. In other words, you see, that while it is true that most people think, or many people think, that prayer is effective in a specific way, Right, like, you know, if somebody is something, if somebody is sick, or if you if you're down and out, or you you daven, and most people think that davening itself or a particular event is something that will be responded to in heaven. But Rashi says about this interaction between Moshe Rabbeinu Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Hakadosh Baruch says, "Look, we're talking about the course of history here." We're talking about what's going to be forever. I'm in charge of that. You don't have to tell me what to do. You don't have to daven. I mean, davening is like you sort of say, you know, is God listening? Maybe, maybe I need a little, a little push to get God to listen to my plea. So this is what, it, what the Pesach says according to Rashi. Mati daber lai. למדנו שמשהו מדבר מתפלל אמר לו אקדוש ברוך הוא אית אתה לאריך בתפילה שישראל שריב בצרה first this is not the time to daven because you got to do something got to act דבר אחר מה תצחקי לי אלי הדבר תלוי ולא אלחא right that's what that's what Rashi said the next Rashi דבר בנאי ישראל ויסאו speak to בנאי ישראל and let them move on אין להם אלא ליסאו they should just go. In, in, in other words, the demand was that B'nai Yisrael confronted with the danger of the Egyptians coming from the rear and the Yamsuf in front of them, that they would be able to <coughs> assume that God will protect them. That was the challenge. It had nothing to do with prayer. It had nothing to do with requests. It was a simple, straightforward suggestion. A, a challenge, I'm sorry. What? Trust. Yeah, yeah, it was a demand on B'day Yisrael to trust God 
that God will continue to do as God did. So, it's hard to understand what the issue was. But there was some kind of issue here. It, it, in other words, B'nai Yisrael obviously were not moving in that direction so quickly. And you know that Chazal said, maybe it was Nachshon Menom and who jumped in first, that he, he was able to, to drag everybody else with him. But there was some kind of a problem. In, in other words, B'nai Yisrael were not able to make this leap of faith, which said that if God did the ten plagues in Egypt, so uh, certainly there will be a, a salvation for us here, right? This is the, this is the beginning of the story, and you all know that the rest of the, how the rest of the story went. Today, so we're convinced, they jumped in. Now, I want to just look at, at the last pasuk. The last pasuk, Vayosha Hashem Vayom Ahu Pasuk Lamed, Vayosha Hashem Vayom Ahu Et Yisrael Biyad Mitzrayim, so this is the end. They got through. The Egyptians died. Right? It talks about is it anthropomorphic? Is it? Uh, is it a mashal? Is it a metaphor? It doesn't matter. They vayard something. Vayard doesn't have to mean they saw it. It could also mean that they understood it. All these verbs in Hebrew can mean like vayar, vayishma, vayavin. All of these verbs could mean the same thing. It doesn't mean that they saw something. It means that they understood what they saw. And so it says in the Pasuk, and then it seems to me and they feared God it seems to me that this picks up on the beginning there was this means don't think incorrectly and Vayar means they thought correctly. Vayir uha amit Hashem. Vayir uha amashem. So there's this, this kind of contrast between the use of the two verbs, and one at the beginning and one at the end of this, of this section. And finally, Vayir uha amit Hashem, Vayamir Hashem, Moshe Avda. Okay? Vayaminu. What's Vayaminu? I don't know. This idea that Vayaminu Bashem of Moshe Abdo is a big idea because it means that the Torah, after all, was given to Bnei Yisrael from God to Moshe to Bnei Yisrael. So somehow they had to develop the confidence that Moshe Abdenu, that Moshe Abdenu was sort of like a, a, an emissary from God for this purpose, but that Moshe Abdenu did not corrupt in any way the Torah that he received from God. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you turn the page, there's a lot of Rashi. All this chapter is very interesting. You could, you could learn it a lot. So there's a t- yeah. Sorry. How did Moshe know that that they would he would never they would never see Egypt again? You know. God said that. God said to to Moshe Rabbeinu. So if you look at the second page, the second page, Likuti Maran. 
there's a wonderful Torah of Rav Nachman. Uh, this, it's, it's part one of the book, the seventh Torah, it's called the Eila Mishpatim. We're just going to learn a little bit of the first section of this Torah of Rav Nachman. Look at Rav Nachman says. He doesn't talk about our chapter at all. But I think he says something that will help us. The Lashon Rabbeinu Aleph. You see, it's the fourth line. The fourth line starts with Aleph. No? Da. Kiikar Hagalut Eino Ela Bishvil Chisaron Emuna. So here's Rav Nachman sitting in some little town in the Ukraine where it's very cold in the winter and the summer is not uh, nothing to write home about. <coughs> and it's like a pretty miserable kind of Yigur of Nachman. As much as he is a success today in Kikar Tzion, was a numerical failure in his own lifetime. I mean, he was not able to attract many Hasidim. He was also the subject and the object of the enmity of other Hasidim. The Shmuel Zayde, who's the most famous of them. The Shmuel Zayde, he's called Zayde because he was old. And it is, the Shmuel is the town that he was in, was the uh, Gabai in the Baal Shem Tov Shul in Mezhubesh. And so from that position as Gabai in the Shul, he became... A Rebbe. Rav Nachman had a thing about Rebbe's that should not have that position. He didn't like. And so the Rebbe's that Rav Nachman thought should not have the position, they didn't like Rav Nachman. So that Rav Nachman in his own time was not a great success. Which may have been to the advantage of the succeeding generations because people who are successful don't have time to write a book like the Likuti Maharan. And even though he didn't really, he didn't write it, but he said it. He said the book, right? It was written by his student, like everyone needs a Boswell. He had one. His Rav Nassim was, you know, one of these people who knew everything and had perfect recall. So when Rav Nachman would give a shear on Shabbos or on Yantiv, Rav Nassim would sit there and then after Shabbos, or after Yatav, he'd write it up. But he would write it up word for word, which was, you know, like sort of helpful. <coughs> but before it was published, Rav Nachman reviewed it. It was published twice, did two books. There was Aleph and Bet, right? It was published first Aleph, then Bet, <laughs> in a reasonable order. But then, after they were both pu- uh, published, they were then published together in one volume. Well, one volume says, you know, there's A and there's B. Because they were not published at the same time. <coughs> so Rav Nachman says this, Da, Kikar Galut, like he's talking about the Galut, you know, he means misery and cold and unhappiness and poverty. He says, Ikar he doesn't mean uh, the west side of Manhattan. He means, you know, the good old Galut, the old time Galut. He said, Dakia Galut, Ika Galut, Eino Ela Bishvil, Chisaron Emunah. And if you don't believe, you're in Galut. Because Galut is the disconnect from God. 
if God has a place, and if there's a Beit Hamikdash in Eretz Yisrael, so if you're in the Galut, you're not uh, you're not close, you're far away. So that uh, that this is because of Emunah. Emunah is enhanced or creates closeness to God. And if you're not in Eretz Yisrael, then you don't have that option. So that's that's Galut. Galut is no Emunah. That's what he says. Kemoshe Katuv is a posuk in Shira Shirim Tavoi Tashuri Meirosh Amana. But you go uh, Rosh Amana is the south of Lebanon, right? You could look into Eretz Yisrael. Meirosh <coughs> Amana. Amana could also be read as Emuna. That somehow looking at Eretz Yisrael and Emuna are equated. And then he goes on and he says, that this is like the way Rav Nachman does it. He says, this is true, A is true, and B is true, and C is true. And it doesn't usually things that everybody knows about, or that he thinks that everybody should know about. And then he says something that is novel. And the novel thing that he says, he proves. You know, he tries to prove it his way, in the way of, of proof. So what does he say? <coughs> what does he say? Emunah, Right? Remember, Moshe Rabbeinu saw fighting against the Amalekites at the end of the parsha of Bishalach, held his hands up, and the Torah says, and you know, the, well, as long as people looked at his hands, they were looking heavenward, and so uh, uh, they won. So, what is looking heavenward? That means tefillah. And that tefillah is called Vayhiyadav Emunah. That faith and tefillah are, are kind of the same thing. I mean, easily explained. The Targumo Prishan Bitsilo. Targumo, the Targumunculus, Prishan is you spread out your arms, and Silo is Tsluta, is a prayer. You spread out, so like, what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing? He was leading the people in prayer. He was leading the people in faith. And because they had faith, and because they had this prayer, I know it's a kasha on what we said about Moshe Rabbeinu and B'nai Yisrael, but let's leave that be for, be for a minute. Because they had the faith, and because they had the prayer, <coughs> they had the emunah, which enabled them, which enabled them to be victorious. That's what, that's what he says. Now look, he says, "V'targumo prisham mitzvah v'zeh bechinat nisim lemala min hateva ki atfila lemala min hateva." You must be talking about miracles that go beyond nature, beyond science. Like science is not, uh, science is not where the miracles are. Ki atfila lemala min hateva. After all, everybody knows. That davening is lamala minateva. What does that mean? That davening is lamala minateva. He says ki hateva According to nature, things will go in a certain way. Right? It'll sun will rise in the morning. Sun will set in the evening. That's that's uh, that's teva. That's teva. But. Uh, so you never daven 
Yud David Poteva. I'll say, in the winter it rains in Eretz Yisrael, right? So you don't have a special, you're not going to daven for rain in the winter, because that's when it's supposed to rain. You're not going to daven for no rain in the summer. So what you daven for is a miracle. What's a miracle? There's no, there's no water. The Kinneret is dry, and it's August. You say, oh, Halavai, it should rain. Even though it never rains, but that's what you want. You want Somebody, Rahman al-Latsan, has a fatal illness. All the doctors say, fatal. So you say, oh, how about Lamalaminateva? How can we overcome the diagnosis of the doctors? That's why, that's why you're davening, right? So he says, he says, Ki atvila mishanahateva. Tefillah is about changing Teva. And that's what a miracle is. And for this you need faith. So the Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman, who was not a philosopher, and who had a great distrust of philosophy, and who, as a result, didn't want to learn the Rambam's books, because the Rambam did depend on general philosophy to a certain nature, to certain uh, <coughs> certain things. Rav Nachman says this, when you daven, what is it you really tried to say? You're saying that even though the world was created in a certain way, Animals live in a certain way, and plants live in a certain way, people live in a certain way. When you daven, what you're really asking God for is to change the divine plan. It's like saying to God, well, maybe you change your mind. A person has an illness, he's attacked by a bug, or whatever, and there's no way to deal with it, there's no way to deal with this particular illness. So, (coughs) at the moment... So you say to God, well, nature, Teva, and who created Teva? God created Teva. You say to God, you created Teva, works this way, but I'm davening that you should uncreate it and make an exception in this case. So that means that whenever you daven, you're davening for the malam in a Teva, something that goes beyond nature. And in order to be able to daven, something that goes beyond nature, you have to have emunah. You have to have emunah. And what is the emunah? That God might change nature. That's the faith. That's what emunah means. <coughs> so now let's go back to the, let's go back to Yitziat Mitzray. The ten plagues. Now even though the Ramban makes this distinction, it is possible to say that none of the ten plagues are the malo minateva. It was, what, what's a plague? Like, let's take uh, locusts, right? Locusts, we have locusts in Israel today, so we're, we can think about it. What's the plague of Arbe? It wasn't the creation of the Arbe. It also wasn't the creation of the hordes of Arbe. So what was it? That when Moshe Rabbeinu said, Arbe, they appeared. They appeared, but somebody in Mitzrayim 
could explain that to himself as not being miraculous. Not having to do with God. Let's take Makat Bechorot. Makat Bechorot is a teva or lamalamad a teva? Look, we all know that in history people have been suffer, have suffered from what we call plagues. The many, many people are affected by a certain kind of uh, uh, disease, illness that can't be controlled and they die. Many children, I mean today, <coughs> I don't want to exaggerate too much with Dr. Fink here, but you know children are born and they don't die. They used to die. In my class, I always say, my class, when I, I, my high school class, we just a couple of years ago had our 50th anniversary, which goes to show you that I'm pretty old. There were no twins. There were no twins. There was, I don't think there were twins in the school I went to. There were no twins. Why were there no twins? Because one died. I mean, that's if they were lucky. Sometimes both of them died. Today, today, this is a very common, very common thing. Nobody dies. Babies don't die. They're born like uh, uh, 15 grams, you know, like this nothing there. They stick them in an oven. And they, it's a, a month later, you have a, you have a person. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's not only unbelievable in itself, but it's unbelievable this change that took place in a short period of time. So what am I trying to say? I say that when the Makat Bechorot came upon the Egyptians, they had an explanation. They knew what it was. They didn't think about God and the, and the Dhamma. That, that's a different story. But they knew. They knew very well that it could happen that we have plague. And everybody dies. Uh, why the older ones? Just the Bechorot? Okay, that, that makes some kind of explanation. And you go through every single one of the Makot every single one of them I quote, they seem to be, I mean, you know, more or less, give me a, don't, don't force me to answer every question here, but more or less, Dam, Tzvadea, Kinim, these are all things that, that occur. They occurred, the miracle was, that they occurred when Moshe Rabbeinu said, Kinim. So they, they all came, but Kinim, if, if you, you know, in Baltimore, they are, they are uh, what do you call them? Does it what? No, <laughs> Baltimore. No, they have. Um, what do they have? What? Locust. That's some kind of a locust. That's the kind of locust here from Egypt. Well, yeah. So every nineteen years, nineteen years, every nineteen years, they come out. So if you grow up in Baltimore, you grew up in Baltimore, and you went to New York, and suddenly in New York there was a maca of locusts. You say, oh, another place. Another place is a Bakav Molog. It wouldn't bother you. So you see, the power of the Egyptians in, in reacting to what was going on, on in their country came from the fact that, that they could explain it. It, it. it bothered them, yes. They were, they were hurt financially, physically, mentally, but it was not something that would prove anything to them. And the, one of the things that happened as a result of the Aseret HaMakot, which didn't prove anything to the Egyptians, 
it must have had an effect on the Jews. So here are the Jews running out of Mitzrayim. They're suddenly confronted by a wall of water. Now they know that in order to save the Jewish people, there has to be something that's lemala min hateva, as Rav Nachman said. How so lemala min hateva? That the water would split, and there were two walls of water, and you walk through. Did you ever see such a thing? You never did. Chazal were, uh, were conscious of this problem. And Chazal say that some things, many things were created during the six days in crea- of creation. And one of them was the splitting of the Red Sea. In other words, according to Chazal, they could not understand how a Kodesh Baruch Hu could deny the Teva that he, so to speak, created. They didn't understand that. So they preferred to say, preferred to say that Kriyatiyam Suf, the splitting of the sea, was determined when? In the creation of the world. How so? According to some, like, every 15,000 years, this would happen or something. There would be some kind of a, a rule where when it appeared in the almanac, it would be okay. Everything would be just fine. So B'nai Yisrael, at this time, they didn't know that. <coughs> they didn't know that the, that the Kriyat Yamsuf was part of the creation process. And so Moshe Rabbeinu said to them, Moshe Rabbeinu said to them, this Lamalam and is also part of the divine promise to take you into Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, this was the moment, this was the moment, Kriyat Yansuf, not the ten plagues, but the Kriyat Yansuf was the moment that HaKadosh taught B'nai Yisrael <coughs> that even Lemalo Min HaTeva, even the something that uh, uproots Teva, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into the created world, even such a thing can be expected if it's a matter of going to Eretz Yisrael or being in Eretz Yisrael. And so the that pasuk, the last pasuk in this section, the Yah Yisrael Mitzrayim made al Hayam. What did they really see? They didn't just see the Egyptians dead. They saw HaKadosh Baruch Hu acting in with Lamalam and Ateva, something that couldn't be, happened. And, and, uh, Asher Hashem b'Mitzrayim, Vayir Uha Ahmed Hashem. And there was a proper, uh, relationship, Yare, fear, a proper relationship between B'nai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And they understood that even Lamalam and Ateva was a possibility. Even Lamalam and Ateva. And therefore, Vayaminu, that's what emunah is. Emunah is about expectation. And the expectation now that B'nai Israel had was anything could happen. If it's a question of the promise that God made to B'nai Israel to bring them to Eretz Kenan, anything, anything can happen. Okay, I wish you uh, Chag Kosher Yeah.
Yeah, but it must have influenced the Jews, no? Because the Jews say, look, how come they're they're not capitulating? And so they must have had a conversation with their neighbor, you know, they had a good neighbor who was an Egyptian. They said, look, the Egyptian said to him, it's true, we're suffering, but there are other times in history that we suffer. There are always the bad things that happen. And the Jews. First the Egyptians, but when the Jews saw that the Egyptians were so strong in their belief, it must have had an effect on them as well. Will God help us even if it goes against the, the, the nature and creation? I don't think so. In fact, I'm sure. What should I? What? Oh, okay, so there'll be a class next week. <laughs>